great song selection today. I'm glad each one of you are here. I prayed that the Lord would bring you here. I prayed this morning before I ate my bowl of oatmeal. <laughs> Lord, if there's anyone who's woken up this morning and felt like, I don't want to come to church, I prayed that you would come. Bow with me now as we pray again. Father, thank you very much for each one that you've brought here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would please speak to us through your word. Lord Jesus, you said that your word is living and active. You said that through the Apostle Paul. And Father, I pray that your word would live within us and show itself to be alive. Lord, as you speak to our hearts, God is in paths of righteousness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Judges chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. So go ahead and be turning there in your Bible. Judges chapter 3. Judges didn't choose their own successors like uh, Moses chose Joshua to succeed and and to to lead after him. Um, No, instead uh, the judges were chosen by God himself and in God's timing. Our next judge in the text this morning is the judge Ehud. And just like the judge that came before him, Othniel, we're again told that it was God himself who raised up Ehud to rescue Israel. You see, it's always the Lord who saves his people. Always. Always has been and always will be. Whether it's the Old Testament saving his people Israel, or whether it's modern day, present time, saving Jew and Gentile alike, It's the Lord who initiates, and it's the Lord who ensures the salvation of his people. He also likes to do it through unlikely people. We know that though the Lord Jesus was infinitely glorious and infinitely beautiful, if you could see the Lord Jesus in all his glory, you would just weep. It's so beautiful. But we know... We know that he came in the form of an ordinary Jewish man. So ordinary, in fact, that Isaiah could say in Isaiah 53, in a prophecy about our Lord Jesus, he could say this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If you memorize that in the old King James, you might recall that it said no form of comeliness that we should admire him. In other words, Jesus would have looked like an ordinary man. Concerning looks alone, nothing about him would have caught your eye if you were walking by Jesus in the market one morning 2,000 years ago. He would have looked like everyone else. In fact, Jesus purposefully limited himself to come down to us. And as we'll see in a moment, the judge in today's text is said to be limited in one way as well. Which is why I've titled the message this morning, Limited and limitless. Limited and limitless. And you'll see why as we go through our text in just a moment. But let's go ahead and look at verses just uh, 12 through 14 just to get us started. Look in your Bible as I read along. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself, this is Eglon, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. With our former judge, um, Othniel, sometimes it's hard to say these old names, the people who came to invade Israel at that time, they came a long way, all the way from Mesopotamia, we're told. In case you're not an expert in geography in that part of the world, join the club. I'm not either. I had to look this up. Mesopotamia is about 100 miles away from Israel. So with the former bad guy, who came and invaded Israel under the former judge. He came a long way. But King Eglon, 
he was actually a neighbor. He didn't have to come very far at all. Actually, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites, those three who all teamed up to come and invade Israel this time, they were not only neighbors. (laughs) Listen to this. They were actually distant relatives of the Jewish people. Let me explain. Remember Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Remember him from the book of Genesis? He was the ancestor of two different men named Moab and Ammon, from whom came the Moabites and the Ammonites. So these are relatives. These are distant relatives of the people of Israel. Also, remember Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. Esau was an ancient relative, an ancestor of Amalek, from whom came the Amalekites. So not only is Israel being invaded by neighbors at this time, these neighbors might have even shown up to family reunions. They were distantly related to the Jews whom they were invading. But why do these neighbors come and invade in the first place? Well, because of verse 12, what we just saw. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We start our sin cycle again, don't we? Remember the sin cycle of Judges? Here we go again. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe said about this doing evil again in the sight of God. One would hope that the judge's godly influence would make a lasting difference in the spiritual life of the nation, but such wasn't the case. He says, no sooner was the judge off the scene than the people were back to worshiping Baal and forsaking the Lord. Their sin brought this judgment upon them. Their sin brought this judgment upon them. Yes, it's true that verse 12 doesn't explicitly say what their sin was. If you were very observant, you would have noticed that. It doesn't actually say, does it, that they started worshiping the bells again. It just says they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. But the fact that that word again is there gives us a big clue. Warren Wiersbe assumes here that it's is Baal worship? Is he right to assume that? Is he right? Well, the fact that it says they did evil again. Okay. If I say, hey, let's do that again. Well, what's it mean? It means we did something the first time, and we're about to do it again. So what was it that they did the first time? Look at verse 7, if you still got your Bible open. Verse 7, same chapter of Judges, says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashereth. Ashereth just being another false god of one of the nations around them. So the the sentence is the same. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, except it's just missing the word again. So I think it's right for Warren Wearsby to assume, I think it's an educated assumption actually, that this is probably idol worship once again. Especially as we look at the rest of the book. They keep falling into the sin cycle, and the sin cycle is them. What's their sin? Idol worship. They fall into it again and again. So yes, I believe it was idol worship. Prior to this second invasion, they were free. They were free people. They were experiencing peace. Why was that? Well, because God had rescued them through Othniel. God rescued them, and they were free, and they were experiencing peace peace so you would think that sheer gratitude alone for being free again might have motivated the people to continue walking in the commandments of God just thank you Lord that we're free thank you that you rescued us let's make sure we don't do that again remembering those eight years of servitude under Kushan the former king who came and invaded them and actually enslaved them carried some of them off as slaves, you'd think that that would be a deterrent to falling back into sinful behavior, remembering God's goodness to them in the present. They're in peace right now. And then also remembering all that some of their fathers and definitely their grandfathers would have told them about all the wondrous things that God had done for them in the past generations. Their grandfathers would have seen things with their own eyes. And be able to sit down the grandchild and say, 
we saw him do this once, and we saw this happen. You'd think that would also sustain their devotion to God during those times of peace. But the heart of their problem was the problem of their heart. Their hearts were given to idolatry, as all men's are. The heart of your problem is the problem of your heart. If your heart's not right with God, that's the heart of your problem. All men's hearts are given to idolatry. Listen to what John Calvin said. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. You know what a factory does? A factory produces things, one after another, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. It's always producing the next thing. And our hearts are idol-making factories. We are very good at it. Listen to what Tim Keller said. He said, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. I'm going to read that again because this is really good. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. Is there something that you feel in your life is incomplete? Is there something that you're saying, this is not there, this thing is not there, therefore I feel unfulfilled, I feel unhappy, I feel unsatisfied, and honestly everything's just not right in the world because this thing is not there. Okay, be very careful then. You may have made an idol out of that thing. You may have. Because if you have Jesus Christ, don't you have everything? Now granted, there are longings we're supposed to have. I'm not talking about those. Good, godly longings, sure, you're supposed to have. But even those, since we're so good at making idols, we can make them into idols as well. I've spoken to many, a non-believer, who it's very easy to point at, well, this is why you're, this is why you're so unfulfilled. I, I know why you're unhappy. I know why you're on meds. I, I know why you're always chasing the next thing. I know why you always want to do this and do that and go here, and you're, you're going broke for all these vacations you're going on. And I know why. It's, it's because you're, you're looking for something else to bring you lasting fulfillment and joy and peace. God's supposed to do that. You've put yourself in number one, and so you're just exhausting all your resources to, to uphold number one. Where if God was number one, you wouldn't feel the need to exhaust all your resources because you'd say, he's my ultimate resource. And I've seen this in a lot of people's lives and I'm sure I've been guilty of it in some ways as well, even now as a Christian. Even now as a Christian. Don't you feel the world clamoring for your attention? Follow me. Come after this thing. Go do this. You need this. You're unhappy unless you have this. I feel it, don't you? And it's a lie. You've got everything you need. God supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, we're told. We have everything we need. So don't look to things to give you meaning and hope and happiness outside of God himself. You see, these people during the time of the judges, they're so much like us today. They're so much like us. Which is why Jesus came into our world to break apart our idols we can make idols with our hands, and we can make them with our hearts and with our minds. Idols always leave us wanting because they seem to promise one thing but never deliver anything of real value. If they deliver something, sure, temporary happiness, temporary fulfillment, it always falls apart because it's not eternal, it's not lasting, it can't last. It does not have that ability to do so. God does, however, and he always delivers something of real value, which is himself. 
could I ever, ever give you anything better than God himself? Could I? The answer is no, of course, because there's nothing better than God himself. And if you have the Lord Jesus, you have everything. But there's so much in the world and the flesh and what the devil tells you that tries to convince you otherwise. A writer I discovered recently, his name is Adrian Early. Really good writer. He says, while an idol will always come up short, the Lord Jesus Christ will never leave us hanging. He lived idol-free, died for our idols, and ultimately paid the price for our idolatry so that we could be set free from looking to other things for fulfillment. He said that that's what the Jews were doing. The Jews were looking to other things for their fulfillment. The Jews were restless in their hearts and unsatisfied with the Lord. I'll tell you why. I think it's because many of them had not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They'd not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Therefore, they were always looking for something else. You only look for something else to satisfy you when you're unsatisfied. Isn't that right? Isn't that why people commit adultery? I have a wife. I'm not so satisfied with her anymore. Ooh, look at that woman. Maybe she'll satisfy me. Look at that man. Maybe he'll satisfy me. Not happy with my husband anymore. We go looking for something else when we're not satisfied with whatever thing we're supposed to be satisfied with. That's why I think Israel at this time was always like, oh, the bells, oh, the bells, oh, the Asherah poles. Because these people actually hadn't truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Now, you might be thinking, but Cohen, I, I sometimes struggle with going after other things. I sometimes struggle with not being ultimately fully satisfied with God. Okay, yes, you're going to get that on certain levels. But to totally punt your Bible and say, forget this Jesus stuff, that's something different, isn't it? That's something altogether different than being temporarily dissuaded away from the right way and saying, oh my gosh, look, I've come off the path. Let me get back on the path. That's something different. We all go through that as Christians from time to time. Your path to glory is a zigzag. It's not a straight line. No one walks the path perfectly. We walk it for a bit. Oh, we get off, and then he pushes us back on. Oh, I'm on, and then I get off again. It's a zigzag all the way there. And that's just the way it is usually for us. I wish I didn't need the little nudges left and right, but I do. But you know what the nudges mean? The nudges mean I've got a father who says, no, 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 no. Back on the path, young man. Back on the path. And that's a good thing because it means my father loves me because he's disciplining me. These people, however, their, their, their hearts were just always restless and they were just always looking for something else. They just were not satisfied with the Lord, their God. Oh, yes, they, they, they heard what their fathers and their grandfathers told them. Oh, and, and yes, of course, they, they towed the line while the, while the judge was alive. But as soon as he's gone, they say, oh, there's no one to... to to make me want to do this anymore. I never really wanted to do it in the first place. Like when I was young, mom used to bring me to church. This was before I was saved. I was 19 when I got saved. So prior to that, mom would bring us to church. But guess what? One day she came in my room. My sister and I were in there. She said, I can tell y'all don't want to be at church anymore. I'm not going to make y'all come. If you want to come with me, I'm going. If you don't want to, then you just stay here. I think that was her attempt to try to make us say, oh, no, Mommy, no, please don't go alone. We'll go with you. But you know what we said? Awesome. <laughs> cool. We're staying home. You know why? I didn't want to be there anyway. You know why? Because I didn't know the Lord Jesus. I didn't care about him. You know what I did care about? A whole lot of Cohen. That's what I cared about. Cohen was Cohen's idol. 
And they were giving lip service to God too and going through the motions too while the judge was there, but always with an eye looking at the idols of the nations around them. Always looking. In response to their evil, their abandonment of the one true God, the rest of verse 12 says that the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of God. Isn't this interesting? The Lord gives strength to the neighboring enemy. The Lord strengthened him. Are you hearing this? God strengthened the enemies of Israel so that they would come and invade Israel. What a reversal. What a reversal. Because remember, when they were walking in the ways of God, God strengthened the people of Israel in the promised land to push the unbelieving nations out of the promised land, to push them out. When they were walking with him, he strengthened them. Now they're walking against him, and God is strengthening them to come back in and invade them in the promised land. What a reversal of the blessing. What a reversal. And of course, it was all their fault. God didn't do anything wrong. He never does. He never can. Everything he does is right and good and holy and just and perfect. Now the unbelieving nations are strengthened as a form of judgment against the people of Israel. So look at verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon the king. So since Eglon the king came and invaded their land, um, there's, there, there's no mention here of Israel being carried off as slaves. This, this serving of Eglon probably refers to them paying tribute to him in some form or another. Even Matthew Henry had this to say, which is really good as well. It says, they made them to serve, that is, exacted tribute from them, either the fruits of the earth in kind or money in lieu of them. They neglected the service of God. And did not pay him his tribute. Thus, therefore, did God recover from them that wine and oil, that silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. What should have been paid to divine grace and was not, was paid to divine justice. They should have been giving tribute to God. Now they find themselves giving tribute to an evil, unbelieving, wicked king. And the people of God should have been giving their animals to sacrifice at the tabernacle. They should have been given their, their first fruits in obedience to the law and on the day of first fruits. They should have been giving their silver and gold to help the livelihood of the priests and the upkeep of the tabernacle. Instead, they end up being forced to give it to their oppressor. Your sinful desires to disobey the Lord seem to promise fulfilling wages. You end up, however, paying the wages of sin. And, church, you know this one, the wages of sin is death. Exactly. So you know it. You know it. Now we need to live it, don't we? Let's not just repeat the verse. Let's live it with our lives. And a lot of you do, and praise Jesus for that. None of us live it quite in perfection that we want to, though, right? The wages of sin will always bring death upon you. Now, I know, in context, this is speaking of salvation. I know that. The wages of sin is death. Paul is referring to that here. They will bring our sin, if not dealt with, will bring us eternal death, damnation, in hell, forever. And Jesus Christ, in the context here, he's talking about Jesus Christ came to pay that for us. He died in our place, took the punishment that we deserved, shed his blood, died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. And that's available for anyone who will come to him in repentance and faith and believe. You can be saved today. It's open to anyone. It's free. But death always pays out wages. Sin, rather, always pays out wages which are Death, which the people are finding here. What's the wages this sin has earned them? Look at four, verse 14. Verse 14 says that the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab. How many years? 18. 18 years. You might remember that before God raised up our former judge, Othniel, 
we're told that the people were slaves under the former bad guy for eight years before Othniel came and delivered them with God's hand being upon him. Eight years. Now what do we see? This time the people are invaded and have to pay tribute 18 years. More than double of the last one. If God's lighter punishment brings no change, he sends a greater punishment. And for you Christians, if God's lighter discipline brings no change, he brings a greater discipline. It's that way with our children as well. Children are too old to get spankings anymore, but that was the same with our children. There is a... uh, a breaking of the rules of the house, guess what? The child gets a pop, pop. And then the child's told, you do that again, you're going to get a worse punishment. And then guess what? We had one child, especially, who will remain nameless, that wanted to always test that. And then the child would do it again. And then the child would be marched into mommy, daddy's bedroom, get talked to again, and then the child would get pop, 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 three. The child would get told, Don't do that again, or it's going to be worse next time. And then guess what? The child always wanted to test. I just want to see if daddy's telling the truth. And then guess what? The child would get that time. Pop, pop, pop. Okay? And you don't want to know how many pops the number has gone up to before. But this child eventually stopped doing it. (laughs) And we see the people of Israel now, the former Infringement upon the law brought eight years. Now we see 18 years. And then verse 15 happens. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Ah, now the people want their God, don't they? Now the people want him. When there's trouble, when there's pain, then they want him around. Not when things are good, though. When God had previously rescued them and given them the, that peace that they so longed for, their, their hearts began to wander. And again, their, their eyes began to look longingly at the shiny idols of the nations around them. The truth is, the truth is, even you and I, even you and I, we don't really necessarily like being around people that act like this. I mean, it's hard to want to be around people who only want your help when everything falls apart in their lives. It's hard to want to be around people like that. They they come to you and they say, help me, help me. Uh, Yes, you were right. Everything bad that you said would happen, should I choose this thing, it did happen. (laughs) You were right about that Um, because I did those things that you said I shouldn't do. And then those bad things happened that you said would happen if I did those things. But now I I really want you to help me get myself out of this mess that I'm in, this mess that you said I'd get in if I did those things. Then you help them, and they thank you. And a little time goes by, and they go right back into their foolish ways and begin to suffer the same consequences that they suffered before from doing those foolish things that that, that you said that they shouldn't do. And then what do they do? Help me, help me. These bad things are happening to me again that you said would happen to me if I did these foolish things, but I did those foolish things anyway and ignored your advice once again. However, I'd like your help again, please. It's hard for us to want to be around people like that, isn't it? It is. What compassion from our Lord, though. What long-suffering our Lord possesses when it comes to these foolish Israelites and when it comes to dolts like us. He rescued them again. We're going to see he does it all throughout the book. We're only on the second judge, guys. God raised up a deliverer. We get a detail about this man. We not only get the tribe that he's from, we're told that he's a left-handed man, which is going to come into play later, of course. Some of you have already read this whole chapter. 
But I want to tell you something about this, because so far you guys are like, I'm not hearing anything about this limited and limitless business that you said, Cohen, why'd you even title the sermon that? A left-handed man, literally, in the Hebrew, says, with his right hand restricted. That's what the text literally says. Ehud, with his right hand restricted. So, some people have said, because there's other ways to say left hand in the Bible. With his left hand restricted. Some people think, maybe, his right hand is incapable in some way. Um, there, are, there is another time, though, when this phrase is used, even in, in the book of Judges, when it's talking about a large group of people um, who use a sling, like a slingshot, with their left hand. And it also says left hand restricted. So it's, it's, it's doubtful that every single one of those were, was handicapped in his right hand. But can it mean that? Yes, it, it can mean somehow his right hand is limited. Some people have just said maybe it's a play on words because the word Benjamin, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, the word Benjamin means son of my right hand. So maybe, the, maybe it's just, just like a play on words. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, son of my right hand, yet he was left-handed. Maybe he's just saying that. I don't know. But... If he was limited with his right hand for some reason, it makes this story make even more sense because he ends up rescuing Israel with his left hand, we're going to find out later. May have been his only good hand. This man may have been limited, but of course with the Lord, he could do anything with God's help. So let's see what goes down. Let's see how does this man deliver Israel because he's, he's, he's come here to do that. What happens? Look at verses 16 through 21 in your Bible. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. By the way, a cubit in the Bible was from a man's elbow to the tip of his fingers. Of course, different sized men would make different cubits, I guess, but it's about 18 inches. So a substantial sword here. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, more than likely to his inner thigh, because it would be hard to use your left hand to reach to the outside and then pull it off. So more than likely to the inside of his thigh where it could be concealed. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So here we are bringing tribute. This wouldn't have seemed unnatural. This wouldn't have seemed weird. Apparently they bring tribute all the time because that's what they have to do for this king, bring him tribute. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. So kiddos, I know this says he's a fat man. Say our kiddos aren't allowed to call people fat. Mommy and daddy don't use that word when talking about bigger people. We just say big or heavyset. That's just how we've always spoken. So we can't start adopting this adjective with people. So, okay. Which well, this helped us once because we were on a plane once. And we've, we've always said big when it comes to people. Okay. Never fat. They could call animals fat, but never people. So once we were on a plane, we had a little child. I forget who it was. One of them was little. And a very tall and big man came walking down the aisle. And one of our children said, that man's big. And I was able to say, yes, he's so tall, isn't he? (laughs) So glad we taught them big. Eglon was a big man. He was a fat man, it says here in the text. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. What was the tribute? We're not told. Money, food, we don't know, but large enough to be carried by people. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said to the king, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone. In his cool roof chamber, in that part of the world, it's very hot. Up on the roof is where you get the most breeze. So on the top of this large building, I'm sure, since the king was in it, he had erected some booth up there because it's going to be much cooler, and that's where he would have wanted to hang out. So that's where he is, and he comes into this private little chamber of the king. And Ehud, um, verse 20, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message 
from God for you. And he had quite the message. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Now, this would have been, this is quite the strategy. And I'll tell you why it was successful. If you're coming into the king's presence, of course, they would not let you have a sword. And if you had a sword, most men would put it on their left side because with your right hand, you, you draw it like a knight, right? So this would have been unsuspected because they would have already looked at him and maybe even searched him. They probably would have only searched over here if they searched him at all. And it wouldn't have been like the TSA search. You know, they wouldn't have searched his sandals and made him go through the metal detector and swabbed him. They would have just looked at him more than likely or did a, a very light pat. And they would have thought he's no harm. Especially, they would have thought he's no harm if he's got a handicapped right hand. The king may have even invited him into his presence alone with sending away his guards, which he did, if he's handicapped. If his, something was wrong with his right hand, it would have definitely been like, oh, he's definitely not a threat. Sure, come in here alone, and obviously you're not armed, and you're not going to be able to do much with your left hand much anyway, more than likely because you don't have a sword. He likely leaned over this way to the king. He's not even seeing his left hand, and he thrusts the sword all the way through him, we're told. Now, verses 24 and 25 say that the guards notice that the king, well, after he kills, after he, he kills the king, he closes the door, and Ehud leaves, walks out like nothing happened. The guards notice that the king is staying in this roof chamber for quite a long time. And of course, they didn't want to disturb the king. Apparently, he had an area in that room where he could also relieve himself. Because it even says the kings, I mean, the, the, the soldiers didn't want to bother him in case he was relieving himself. So they leave him alone for a long time. And finally, it gets awkward enough, long enough, that they say, I think we should just go check on him, even if we embarrass ourselves somehow. And they go in there, and they find him no longer living. But this is to the advantage of Ehud. This gives him a lot of time. This gives him time that he needs to not only escape, but to get the upper hand on his enemy. By taking them by surprise. He's able to rally men during that time. He's able to uh, get them ready to either fight or defend. And this is all of God's doing. It's extra time that he was awarded. This was God's favor to get him ready because then we're told in verses 26 through 30 Ehud escaped while they delayed do you see that and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sira when he arrived he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was their leader and he said to them follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan. What's a ford? If you don't know what that is, a ford in a river, because that's the Jordan River, by the way, is like the shallow spot where you can walk over. So this would have been the spots that if anyone's coming from outside of Israel, wanted to come as reinforcements to help in the battle, they would have had to have crossed over these fords. That's where you can walk over, you can carry supplies over, you can bring chariots over. They because they had extra time afforded to them by God, they were able to secure these places so no reinforcements could come, so they could keep the battle inside Israel. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 29, And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites. And it doesn't just stop there. All strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. Remember who the Israel... I mean... Who were the people of Israel at this time? They were an invaded nation. Do you think that the nation, I mean, that the invading nation was going to let them keep weapons and things like that? No, that's not how it worked. When a nation invades you, they take all your weapons away so that you cannot retaliate against them. And they would have been like this for 18 years. So you're talking about farmers and people that handle cattle and such. 
If you've seen the movie Braveheart, this is something akin to that. When the Scottish raised up against the king of England and a bunch of farmers and people whooped up on a much more substantial, uh, able-bodied army. Again and again, I mean, these are like farmers going against strong, able-bodied soldiers. Farmers beating the equivalent of elite soldiers in our day. Not a man escaped. Why was that? Because of what Ehud said. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. The Lord did it. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land of Israel had rest for how long? 80 years. If you remember from the last judge, Othniel, after God used him to deliver Israel, the text told us in verse 11, you can even look in your Bible right now, that the people had rest for 40 years after him. 40 years. Here we see that they had rest for twice as long, 80 years. So not only was their punishment longer, 18 years. Remember, it was eight before. Now it's 18. Well, God is so gracious In his rest, in his giving of rest, he doubles their rest. Forty years under this. So yes, God was more severe in his punishment. He's also even more gracious in his rest that he gave them. Eighty years. Wow. So let's talk about some... Let's talk about some points that I want to bring out about the judge Ehud. And then I want to compare that to Jesus Christ. Because I believe we can find something in each of the judges that points us to the better leader of God's people. So let's look at these three points that I found for Ehud. Let's talk about what it means to be God's man. First of all, God's man is built for God's plan, I said. We had here a left-handed man who was possibly limited in his right hand, if you want to interpret it 100% accurately. He was limited in his right hand. So this was God's man. He was built for this. And God's man is always built for God's plan. Whoever you are, if God calls you to do something, he's built you for that. Did you hear what I said? Some of you actually need to hear this today, right now. If God's called you to do something, he's built you for it. You've got what you need to do it because you've got him. You just need to obey. Okay? If he wanted someone else, he would have called that person. This was a left-handed man that had a strategy that worked because he was a left-handed man. Secondly, God's man receives God's advantage. You could also say God's man receives God's favor, God's blessing. Verse 26 tells us that Ehud escaped while they delayed. Why? Did this work? Because God was behind it. They delayed because of how things happened with Ehud. God made it happen that way. And then at the end of verse 28, it says, So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan so that the Moabites didn't cross over. How'd they get to the fords first? God's favor was upon them. Why was God, why'd they get there first? Because they had that extra time. So God's man receives God's advantage. If you're walking in obedience, you'll have God's favor. Thirdly, when it comes to Ehud, God's man acknowledges God's hand. Listen to what Ehud said in verse 28. Did you guys see this? Pick up on it. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. He didn't just say, follow me. Obviously, I'm awesome. He didn't say that. He said, I'll tell you why you should follow me. Because God gave the enemies into our hand. God's man will acknowledge God. God's man will want God in place number one. What did I say to you at the beginning of this sermon? If I want to give you what's best for you, I'm going to give you what? God, right? Because what's better than God? So God's man is going to point always to what's best for God's people. And that's God. That's why That's why you need to resist 
temptations to read books and listen to sermons and be at churches where the sermon is all about you. I don't come here to hear about me. I don't come here to tell you about me. Well, Cohen, you told us about stories about your children earlier. Yes. (laughs) To make a point about God, right? (laughs) If I was to just tell you about me the whole time, what a disservice I would be doing you. What a horrible disservice. You know why? Because I know someone better than me. God's man acknowledges God's hand. Ehud was limited, it seems. But with God, he was limitless. Look what he did with God on his side. Now, what we see here in an imperfect way through Ehud, we see perfectly in Jesus. In those points that I just had up on the screen, I had Ehud's name at the bottom. You could put Jesus' name at the bottom. Listen to this. God's man is built for God's plan. Think about Jesus Christ. How was he built? He was built, or is, the God-man. I don't, I don't want to say he's built because that makes it sound like he was created, and he wasn't. He's eternal. But he was the God-man. When he became incarnate, he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. And there's no one that's ever been like that, nor will there ever be again. God's man was built perfectly for God's plan. He had to be 100% man so he could be like us in every way, be tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He also had to be 100% man so that he could die, actually die, shed blood, real blood, and really die in our place because the wages of sin is death. Remember like you said earlier? There had to be a real death for your sin, and Jesus Christ really died. Yet, since he was also God, he could also be sinless perfectly keep the law in our behalf that we break. You're all lawbreakers, especially this one. Those of you listening online, I pointed to myself. He perfectly kept the law and didn't stay dead, raised himself from the dead on the third day. No man can do that. God's man is built for God's plan. Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man. Secondly, I said God's man receives God's advantage, meaning God's man receives God's favor. Did the Lord Jesus receive God's favor? (laughs) This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Also, Luke tells us, and he grew in favor with God and with man. And what happened every time the crowds tried to get him when it wasn't time for him to die? He passed through their midst, it says, and they could never capture him. They even tried to throw him off a cliff once, a cliff once. I mean, they're like pushing him off a cliff, and the text just said, and he passed through their midst. I was watching a movie once that tried to depict this. (laughs) It's an older one. And they're, they're mad, and they're going out there, and then all of a sudden it says, and he passed through their midst. And the next scene, they're all just like kind of standing there, silent and still, and he's walking away. And I thought... It probably didn't happen exactly like that, but I get the point. God's man received God's favor always in his life. God's favor was upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and he did receive God's advantage. Lastly, God's man acknowledges God's hand. Jesus, if you count the times he talks about my father and talks about my father this and my father that, for example, my father is working till now and I am working. I've come in my father's name. For this is the will of my Father. He was always pointing to the Father, wasn't he? So what we see in Ehud, imperfectly, we see in Jesus perfectly, don't we? There's something about each of these judges as, as, as messed up as some of them get. Okay, We're still in the ones that we call pretty good. They just all go downhill from here. They, they start out as pretty good, and then they go to okay, and then they go to bad, and then they go to worse. But we're still in the ones who are pretty good. So we see it imperfectly in Ehud, and we see it perfectly in Christ. Limited, but limitless. Let's talk about Jesus being limited and limitless, and then I'll end with this. I'm just going to read from you Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. How was Jesus limited and limitless? 
Paul says this to the church at Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the limiting. He limited himself on purpose to come down to us. How is he limitless? Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our limitless Jesus right now, seated at the right hand in glory, receiving all praise that's due to him, that's always been due to him forever and ever and ever. And I want you to be among that number. And he wants you to be among that number. So if you're not, make today that day. And you'll be with us in glory. And you'll be like these people that God can use while you're here to advance the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these wonderful truths that we've seen in the scriptures again. You using limited men, but men who are willing to walk in obedience. You being gracious to your people when they went against you again and again. Lord, thank you that you're gracious with us. Please, Lord, help us not to fall into that folly. Help us to taste and see that the Lord is good and to be totally satisfied with you so that our hearts aren't looking for something else. Lord, please help us, Lord, to be ultimately truly satisfied in you. I can't stand it when I see in myself a dissatisfaction when I'm supposed to be fully satisfied in Christ. Lord, make us fully satisfied in you. We love you and we pray this in your son's perfect name. Amen.